Hey listener, thanks for joining us for TRP's weekly podcast. The Restoration Project is a cooperative Baptist fellowship church located in Salisbury, Maryland. We are currently teaching through the book of Exodus. It's an important ancient story about God rescuing the Hebrew people from forced labor in Egypt. This story informs much of what Israel believed about God, and it recurs throughout the Old Testament. The themes sounded in the story ultimately reach their climax in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, who leads people out of a different form of slavery and oppression into life and hope. If you would like more information on the Restoration Project, you can check us out on Facebook or head over to our website at restoresby.org. Enjoy the episode. They say that Easter is the Super Bowl of preaching. I disagree with that. If you're not talking about Easter every week, then we're doing something terribly, terribly wrong. So hopefully this is just one more in the line of uh, talks that we have about the gospel. Although I made this qualification to a handful of students already, I did get a chance to speak at Crew uh, at the, on the campus of SU on Thursday. So I got to test some of this material. So for some of you, it'll be rehash. For others of you, sort of new. For others of you, let's just roll with it together. Okay, this is the resurrection story from the Gospel of Matthew. It says in Matthew chapter 28, after the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Skipping ahead to verse 16, it says, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age the word of God for the people of God. So around the year 1930 or so, Elias Garcia Martinez was commissioned to paint a fresco in the Sanctuary of Mercy in Borja, Spain. This painting is not remarkable to anyone who's looking at it now. It looks a bit old and a bit dated. Um, Even at the time, it wasn't necessarily the most remarkable of all paintings, although in recent years it has gained something of a cult following now because of the work that has been done in an attempt to restore this painting. Cecilia Jimenez, an 80-year-old parishioner of the Sanctuary of Mercy in Borja, Spain, took it upon herself 
to restore this painting to its original prominence. Now, the priest knew what was going on, but her work left a little something to be desired. The painting to the left, that of uh, Martinez, was known as Ece Omo, Behold the Man. The adaptation or restoration of Ms. Jimenez has come to be known as Ece Mono, Behold the Monkey. Commentators from BBC World News said that it looks like a crayon sketch of a very hairy monkey in an ill-fitting tunic. Let's just take a moment and soak this in. I've used this example a couple times, and each time I put this up on, on the screen, people, I, I sense that there's some confusion, like, do I laugh at this? Is that disrespectful? I mean, it is Jesus, but he does look kind of like a monkey. I don't know what I'm supposed to do here. You're supposed to laugh because this is absolutely ridiculous. And what's even more ridiculous is the interviews that are going around with Miss Jimenez, who is like this eccentric and very uh, verbose 80-year-old woman who's like, of course they knew what I was doing. Of course this was, this was something that they asked me to do. And of course they're, oh, they're okay with it. Like she was defending this work and it's just, and even now that this has become the atrocity that it is, a lot of, quote, hipsters are now making pilgrimages to Borja, Spain to look at this fresco on the pillar in the middle of Sanctuary of Mercy Church. And now Ms. Jimenez, one some of the prophets from the people who are uh, visiting this, this church. There's a, a marked difference between the Jesus on the left and the Jesus on the right, which leads me to ask this question. And this is more of a pastory question than I'm used to asking, but what would our reconstruction of Jesus look like? There's two ways I think that you can take this question. One would be, what is the story that we tell of Jesus. And the example that I used a few days ago was when you're sitting across the table at Rise Up Coffee or you're sitting across the table from wherever you are and you're just interacting with people and they're asking you about the hope that you have. This is for the Christians in the room, for the hope that you have in Jesus. They're asking you to explain the gospel. Or they're asking you maybe Monday or Tuesday in the next couple of days, they're saying, what's the deal with Easter? Why does everybody get dressed up and go? And why is my Facebook feed being completely bombarded with memes of empty tombs and old things and Bible verses from people that uh, I didn't know liked to read the Bible. They're just like, today is the day when people seem to come out of the wood. What's the deal with that? What's the story then that we tell these people about our faith? How do we explain to them what it means when we sing songs about the beautiful name of Jesus or we, we sing songs about the death and resurrection of Jesus? And I'm, I'm not... Um, immune to the fact that people that are coming into this space, even tonight, that don't have the background of a lot of the church folks, when you come in here and we start talking about the blood of the lamb that spilled for all of the world, you're kind of like, what is going on with this craziness? Or as at the end of the service, when we talk about like, this is the blood of the new covenant, like it's, it's graphic symbolism that means so much to us, but for people that don't know or don't have that background, how do we tell that story of what the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus actually means. Now beyond that, the other reconstruction of Jesus is the life that we live, the story that we live for people to see. 
Now, for a lot of folks, and especially within the church, we hear phrases like, you might be the only Jesus that someone ever sees or the only Bible that anyone ever reads. And like, that puts a lot of pressure on you and you're kind of walking through life thinking like, oh gosh, I hope I don't jack this up for somebody. But like, how do the words that we say and the, the deeds that we have and the way that we communicate with people and the decisions that we make in the workplace or at home or in school or what have you, how does that communicate the gospel or how does that demonstrate a story about Jesus that we're supposed to be committing ourselves too. It's not just the philosophical conversations and theological conversations that we have over coffee. It's also the life that we live. And let me tell you, the more time I spend in ministry, the more conversations I have with people and some of their biggest hangups are, it doesn't seem like Christians actually love in the way that they think they do or in the way that they hope they are. In fact, I feel completely isolated and ostracized from people in the church. So the story that we tell sometimes is separated from the story that we live, but these are two different ways that you can think about the reconstruction of what Jesus looks like that we are creating for people. There's a moral philosopher who spent most of his career at the University of Notre Dame. He's very well known. His name is Alistair McIntyre. And one of his big... Um, contributions to the academy is narrative ethics. And he says, before we can start answering any questions about what am I to do, ethics, what, what choices I am to make or, or how I am supposed to live, we must first ask ourselves of what story or stories do we find ourselves apart? In other words, what story are we living in that gives our life coherence and meaning and structure? And it's only when we figure that out that our ethics and the things that we do and say will begin to make sense. For McIntyre, these things about the story that we tell and the life that we live, they are not distinct. They are actually meant to be the same things. And when we're understanding the story, the life that we live will mirror that story. Now here's the problem, at least as I see it. For many folks in the church, our story is completely jacked up. Our story that's meant to be a restoration or something that's meant to make Jesus more vivid is actually something that doesn't necessarily communicate to people, especially on a day like today the most holy of Christian holidays, when we're surrounded by these ideas of death and resurrection, it seems to me as though the church somewhere along the way has presented an image of Jesus a bit more, and this is gonna be a bit bold, a bit more like Ecce Mono. I think that we've gotten far away and we need to recapture what it is that we are believing so that we can understand the story that we are living in so that we can communicate it with effectiveness. Now, my main man, N.T. Wright, says this, particularly about Easter, and I want to read it to you because I thought it was uh, worth listening to. It's a bit long, so I'll try to break it up with some of my commentary, just to keep you guys honest. This is from uh, one of my favorite books of N.T. Wright. It's called Surprised by Hope. If you have an e-reader, it's $2 on Amazon right now if you would like to purchase that. For those of you that spent money on the real book, I'm sorry, uh, no refunds for you. He says, I should regard it as absurd 
and unjustifiable that we should spend 40 days keeping Lent, pondering what it means, preaching about self-denial, being at least a little gloomy, and then bringing it all to a peak with Holy Week, which in turn climaxes with Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday, and then after a rather odd Holy Saturday, we have a single day of celebration. What Wright is saying right up to this point is within the Christian church, there's 40 days where we are fasting and we are like withholding ourselves from these great practices. Then we have one day when we get excited and we get to sing really old, slow hymns uh, together in church. There's one day of the year when we put on our Sunday best and we show up and say, yeah, there's one day of the year when our Facebook feed looks crazy and we've got memes and we've got verses. We're like, yes, please and thank you, Jesus and me. And then tomorrow it's like, and now it's the Orioles or whatever it is that we're concerned with. He says, Easter week itself ought not to be the time when all the clergy sigh with a relief and go on holiday. And I must tell you, just an open confession and communication, I've preached like 10 or so weeks in a row and I'm tired. And I was thinking if I could just make it to Easter and then I can go on vacation, which means for me, I work, you know, 45 hours instead of 60. And then I just, you know, don't preach for a week. Sorry, that was, I opened up the door too far and I let you in too much. And I, I want to apologize for you there. Um, but busted, N.T. Wright, you got me. He says, instead, it ought to be, and you'll like this, it ought to be an eight-day festival with champagne served after morning prayer because we pray in the mornings and even before morning prayer. So we just wake up and we start chugging champagne with lots of alleluias and extra hymns and spectacular anthems because American Christians love alleluias and more hymns. We need more hymns and spectacular anthems. He's British and he's old, but you get the point. He's saying it should be a party where eight days we're celebrating the resurrection. Is it any wonder, he asks, that people find it hard to believe in the resurrection of Jesus if we don't throw our hats in the air? Is it any wonder we find it hard to live the resurrection if we don't do it exuberantly in our liturgies? Is it any wonder the world doesn't take much notice if Easter is celebrated as simply the one-day happy ending tacked on to 40 days of fasting and gloom? It's long overdue that we take a hard look at how we keep Easter in church, at home, in our personal lives, right through the system. And if it means rethinking some cherished habits, well, maybe it's time for us to wake up. I'd like to propose, and I want somebody to remind me, because I will certainly forget this at this time next year, but next year, TRP should be a church that practices an eight-day festival with champagne toasts. And I even thought, like, could I go get some Martinelli's? Because we're, we're probably not at the place. We're doing beer and hymns, yes, but I can't just spring champagne on you in the narthex here. But can we go get some Martinelli's? Some sparkling apple cider. Side note, I remember being at, as a kid, like sometimes I'd look underneath of the, the sink and find like a bottle of Martinelli's that mom and dad were saving for a special occasion. I don't know when or where that was, and we'll just let that one go, okay, for now. Listen to this. You're not going to like this, and this is going to finish up my N.T. Wright quote. He says, this is our greatest festival, speaking of Easter. Take Christmas away. And in biblical terms, you lose two chapters at the front of Matthew and Luke and nothing else. Take Easter away, and you don't have a New Testament. You don't have a Christianity. As Paul says, you are still in your sins. We shouldn't allow the secular world with its schedules and habits and para-religious events, its cute Easter bunnies to blow us off course. This is our greatest day. We should put the flags out. 
N.T. Wright calling us to task as the church to say we've missed it somewhere. The image of Easter that we give to the world is a Facebook meme and a crazy hat or a nice dress or a suit. We're giving the world something that's a bit different than, I don't want to just say the original, but something less than what is compelling and good and something that's worth celebrating even. We should put the flags out, he says. And it leads me to wonder, do we even understand the resurrection? For the Christians in the room, do we even understand what it is that we're celebrating here and now? We say, yes, Christ is risen indeed, but what does that mean for us today? I know for a lot of years in my own life, this was just the rhetoric that we use. This was the thing that we said. And for me, this was the, the sign and seal of my salvation because then I knew if Jesus has been raised from the dead, then I'm not gonna go to hell when I die. And for me, that was like the end all be all. But I've come to see that the resurrection is so much more than that. Do we even understand the resurrection? Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, if Christ hasn't been raised, then our preaching is useless and your faith is useless. This is an important thing within the scope of Christianity, the Orthodox Christian faith. A few months ago when we were going through our creed series and the things that were central, we say this a lot at TRP, the things that are non-negotiable for us, Jesus, his death, his resurrection, those are the flags that we put in the ground and that is what we unite around together as Christians. We can be wildly diverse when it comes to creation views. We can be wildly diverse when it comes to how we should um, celebrate baptism or the sacraments. We, should be, we can be wildly diverse all over the place, but when it comes to Jesus and his death and his resurrection, that is the thing, but do we understand what it means? Paul says, if, if this didn't happen, then our preaching is useless and your faith is useless. And he kind of pushes us further um, later on in that chapter. He says, if Christ hasn't been raised, then your faith is worthless. Um, you are still in your sins. And what's more, those who have died in Christ are gone forever. There's this whole argument going on within the Corinthian church surrounding whether or not resurrection is actually happening. And Paul is trying to legitimize the historicity of Jesus' own resurrection. That's a lot of jargon and words there. He's trying to say this has really happened. And because Jesus has died for our sins and however we quantify that, and because Jesus is now raised by the Father, this is meaningful for us as Christians. So what this means is our preaching in the church has become first, it has become a defense. And we feel as pastors that it's up to us to have all of the skeptics in the room all at once. They all come out in droves on Easter. We're thankful that you're here. And if we can just convince you on this one day that this one event really happened in history, then we gotcha. And we've been doing that for decades. And somewhere along the way, we've missed the importance of what that means for me and for you and for the world. Now, pause for a moment. We can very quickly go back to the text and say there's, there's oddities in the way these stories are told in the New Testament that lead us to have um, hooks, historical hooks, where we can say this event happened in history because if it didn't, then the way that the New Testament is written would be, would be totally different. For example, and this is a classic example, in the first century Jewish context, and I'm sorry, ladies, this is not politically correct, but this is 
one of the hooks that we have for the historicity of Jesus' resurrection. In the first century Jewish culture, the word of a woman was worth nothing in the court of law. I apologize, and I wish it was different back then, but it wasn't, but here, here we are. But what's interesting about this, in both of the resurrection stories that we read, who's showing up at the tomb? Women. If you were just making this story up, you would not put the gospel, you would not put the resurrection of Jesus in the mouths of women because nobody would have cared in the ancient world. You would have made it like a statesman or somebody who's noble or like a notary public or somebody that's like worth something. You know what I mean? That's, that's, a, that's really overstated the case there, ladies. I apologize. But in the first century Jewish culture, you, you know what I mean, okay? If you were just making this up, you would have made the story very different. There's also differences with, um, if you were just making this up, the way that Jesus shows up after he is raised from the dead, he would look different. Because according to the Old Testament, what they were expecting was a Jesus who was like shining and bright like a star. They were waiting for somebody like that to show up. But Jesus just shows up as a gardener. And as he's having conversations with these women, they don't even recognize him. Or when he shows up to his disciples, he's like, here, you can, you can check out the marks in my hands and in my feet. Like, I've got a body just like you. I'm not glowing. Yes, I can like... Uh, be in one room and then kind of disappear and be in that room. It's weird Jesus stuff, but like he's still like got a body that nobody was expecting him to have. The way that the New Testament tells these stories, it, it wouldn't have been good to make that up if you're trying to prove that this happened. Okay, but th this is not my main point here. Our preaching has become a defense, and I think that in so doing, we've forgotten what it actually means, and along the way, our preaching has also become a misrepresentation of who Jesus is and what the gospel is and what the significance and importance of his death and his resurrection are. Again, for me, when I was growing up, and maybe some of you can relate to this, the way that the gospel was presented to me was, hey, Josh, you're a terrible, sinful person. There is nothing good about you whatsoever. If you died right now, you would go burn in hell for all of eternity. But there's good news. If you believe in Jesus right now and if you pray this prayer right now or if you raise your hand right now or if you sign this commitment card right now, then you don't have to burn in hell for all of eternity. You can float off somewhere on a cloud and play a harp and hang out with Jesus and go to heaven when you die. That sounds good, right, five-year-old Josh? Yes, I'm traumatized. Who are you? Some of you, can, I think, can relate to that. Now, as much as I'm standing here, and I tend to go way too far to the one side here, so let's bring it back. I do firmly believe that Jesus died for our sins. I do firmly believe that his death means something for me and the wrongs that I have committed in my life. I do very much believe that Jesus has taken on a punishment that was meant for me. I do totally believe that. However, I think that that's such a limited scope of what the gospel actually is. And to be honest, I don't think it sells real well. It's not that compelling because what Jesus has done is so much broader than just me or just you. Okay, so these, these are the things of what our preaching has become, and now I want to put the death and resurrection of Jesus in context, because that's what we do here. I'd like for us to go back and just look at some facts about what's going on at this time. 
So when Jesus dies, and when Jesus is raised from the dead, you have to understand that the resurrection was a surprising finish to Jesus' mission. Nobody understood what was going to happen with Jesus. Why? Because no one was expecting their Messiah to die. I don't know if you know this, but Jesus was not unique in the sense of being one who people thought was the Messiah. There was Messiah figures before Jesus and there was Messiah figures after Jesus. And what happens in the ancient world when your Messiah dies, you pretty much have two options. You can go home or you can find a new Messiah because death was not in the cards for these people. And when the the enemy of the state puts Jesus to death, for most people it's like, It was a good run, but this is not what they were expecting. This is why when Jesus keeps saying to Peter, hey, Peter, I'm gonna gonna die. And even then when he says, and three days later, I'm gonna be raised from the dead, Peter's like, no, 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 it doesn't make any sense. And there's one text in Mark where it says that Peter begins to rebuke Jesus, and I love that. And Jesus doesn't take none of that from nobody. And he's like, get behind me, Satan. Peter kind of shuffled away like Charlie Brown. <laughs> Abe does this thing now where it's like whenever we, we get on him, he just puts his head down and starts shuffling him. <laughs> Charlie Brown, cue the music. I, I sense this is what's happening in, in Peter's world where he's like, no, and he thinks he's got it right, but he's got it so wrong. And this keeps happening in the gospel of Mark where Jesus keeps saying very plainly, hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna die and then I'm gonna be raised from the dead. And they're like, no, they have no idea what's happening because this is not in the scope of anyone's belief. They were not expecting the Messiah to die and no one was expecting the Messiah to be raised from the dead. Especially they weren't expecting the Messiah to be raised alone from the dead. And one of the the most important um, parts of this, at least uh, for me in this context is when Jesus is going to Lazarus's house. Lazarus is dead. He's been dead for four days. He shows up and Mary and Martha, the sisters of Lazarus, they're absolutely furious with Jesus because they've seen him do so many miracles. And they say, if you were only here, Jesus, you could have stopped this. And Jesus says something like esoteric to Martha, I am the resurrection. Anyone who believes in me, though they die, they will live. Do you believe this, Martha? (laughs) And Martha says, of course I believe this, Jesus. I know that at the end, people will be raised from the dead. I know that there will be a resurrection. But this is not the time, Jesus, for us to talk about that. You could have stopped my brother from dying. No one was expecting what Jesus was doing with his own. No one was expecting one person to be raised from the dead like Jesus in a a totally different way than anyone else. No one was expecting that. N.T. Wright says, no first century Jew prior to Easter expected the resurrection to be anything other than a large scale event happening to all of God's people, not just Jesus, not just one person. And if you're you're curious, the, the Lazarus bit is very different. He's dead. Jesus raises him from the dead, but then Lazarus dies again later. Not true resurrection, but a resurrection for a time. 
true resurrection entails like this transformation of your body as Jesus has after his own resurrection. So they're waiting for this large scale event to happen to all people or perhaps to the entire human race as part of the sudden event in which God's kingdom would finally come on earth as it is in heaven. And this is what Jesus keeps talking about all throughout his ministry. I've come to bring the kingdom. And in me and in these miracles, the kingdom is coming here. And when I heal people, I'm giving a glimpse of the kingdom. And when I provide people with food, I'm giving a glimpse of the kingdom. And when I forgive sins, I'm giving a glimpse of the kingdom. And when I die and when I am raised from the dead, I will bring in the kingdom. Now, come on, somebody give me an amen here for some first century Jewish eschatology. Yes, here we are. Now, I know that you've seen this before, but I keep showing it to you in hopes that it will mean something to you at some point, okay? Because when Jesus is cruising the streets, he, he is interacting with people that believe that history is linear. And at some point, God's Messiah is going to show up and bring about restoration to everyone, bring about victory to everyone. For the Jews who were in exile, meaning like they were under the oppression of whoever, they were expecting somebody to show up and to end that. They were in this age, this present age of suffering and hope, but at some point, the age to come would show up when the Messiah, the true Messiah shows up, delivers Israel and God's people from all sorts of um, wrongdoing and the atrocities that are brought up upon them, and they would enter into the age to come. This is what people were waiting for in Jesus' time. And this is what I want you to see because when Jesus dies... And when Jesus is resurrected by himself, the first one, Paul says he's, he's the first fruits of this big harvest of resurrection. It changes everything. And this is called, fancy terms here, and I hate to go jargony on you, but you've got to get this, inaugurated eschatology. The end is here now. The kingdom is here now. I'm gonna go here. Heaven is here now, and it's invading this place. Now, don't go all crazy and say, Josh doesn't believe in heaven. Not what I'm saying. I'm saying because of Jesus, he's starting to bring hints of what is to come here and now. And now we live kind of in this hybrid moment of like, we're in this present age of suffering, but there's also this hope and this kingdom and this Forgiveness and mercy and grace, all these things that we experience here and now because of Jesus and because of his death and because of his resurrection. If Jesus stayed dead, as Paul would say, it doesn't mean anything. But what he has done is he has signaled the beginning of new creation. And if you want to see me get going on something, you just start talking to me about this because this is what the gospel is. This is not five-year-old Josh. Do you want to be scared out of your mind, pee your pants, and think about burning for all of eternity? This is Jesus doing something completely different where he is establishing new creation over the entire cosmos. The entire world is celebrating the work of Jesus and his death and his resurrection. He is bringing about new life here and now. This is not just, hey, if you guys just hold off for a while and don't have sex and don't do drugs and don't cuss, certainly don't cuss and don't, you know, do anything stupid. Then when you die, you'll get to go to heaven. That's cool news, right? It's so much better because it actually has a, a meaning for what's happening here and now, 
in this moment for us and for Jesus, he is signaling new creation that's happening here and now. Easter, therefore, is a bold announcement of new creation. I don't know any other way to make this exciting to you. I'm up here sweating. I'm jumping around. I've got my leg kicks going. This is what this is all about. Through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, something new is happening, and we get to be a part of it. We get to participate in this now. This is why our church is called the Restoration Project, because we believe that it has started with Jesus and that restoration and redemption and reconciliation is happening here and now. And what God is doing is he's not just saying, hey, just hold off. And at some point you get to go to heaven. He's saying, hey, I need you here and now because the people that you know and the sphere of influence that you have, I could use you in bringing about restoration and reconciliation and redemption. And the things that you can do, even as small as taking, this is gonna be dumb, even as small as taking your plastic bottle and putting it in a recycle bin, it means something. Even something where you are being a steward of the world, it means something. Even the way that you treat your animals, it means something. I'm just preaching myself here because I'm not great with my dog. Okay, but... Everything that we do, it doesn't just burn up when God destroys this place because he's done with it. Everything that we do, it continues on because God through us is bringing about restoration and redemption and reconciliation. And that's why we are the Restoration Project because I believe that it starts with us. We get to participate in it here and now. What Paul says in 2 Corinthians, I think is, is bold and it's beautiful. And this is um, from the Common English Bible. It says, if anyone is in Christ, that person is part of the new creation. Humble yourself for a moment. You are part of something much bigger and greater than just you. You are part of something that is happening beyond just you. We are together part of the new creation. The old things have gone away and look, new things have arrived through Jesus because of Easter. When we come in here and we sing these old hymns, I'm hopeful that it's not just the drone of routine, but I'm hopeful that we get a glimpse of this. And as we come into this space and as we live our lives, we begin to see that we are part of the new creation. And God has so redeemed us and loved us and cared for us that we get to participate in this. We're now the relationships that we have with people and the conversations that we have with people, they mean something because we can be ambassadors of hope and justice and peace as we announce not just this scary version of the gospel, we announce a version of the gospel that says Jesus has fundamentally changed everything. And you get to be a part of it. To me, that's so compelling. That's what I want to give my life to, is to follow this ancient first century homeless Jewish rabbi who is saying, Josh, we've got work to do. And I want the things that you do and the things that you busy yourself with here and now to matter with regard to my kingdom. That's what it's about. And we, we get to be a part of that when we align ourselves with Jesus. Easter is a bold announcement of new creation through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And it's not just about us. This is why Paul says that creation is groaning, waiting for the completion of this, waiting for Jesus' return, waiting that everything would be put right. It's not just about you and your commitment card. It's about Jesus doing a work in the entire world and him loving us enough to say, come on, let's do it together.
It's beautiful. Now, I know that as we're, we're sitting here uh, thinking through some of this, I at least want to call attention to, to this thing. Yes, restoration is happening. I believe that. Um, our text in Matthew, uh, one line that has meant something to me over the last five to 10 years or so, I don't know, I'm old, so it all runs together these days. Um, there's this line where after Jesus is raised from the dead, he's, he shows up to his 11. And it says, um, when they saw him, they worshiped him. But some still had some questions. They worshiped him, they sang the songs, but you know, some, some wanted to check some, some had some pertinent questions that they wanted to ask of Jesus. And I wanna make space tonight. I wanna make space for the people in the room that might not quite be there yet. I wanna make space for you where you're sitting there thinking like, man, this sounds compelling. Like we get to be part of this new creation and things that I do, they matter. And God is making all things new and he's restoring this place and restoration is actually happening right now. It's not just about where I go when I die. It's something here and now where the things that I'm doing and things that we are doing, they have eternal significance. That sounds great, but I've got some questions I need to ask. I want to give you freedom to be in this lot of people, some they saw him, they worshiped him, but some had questions. And I wanna let you know that you're not alone in that. I had um, a former college student sitting on my couch yesterday. She was talking about like, um, you know, life and I don't even know, but something came, came across where it almost seemed like Kate and I knew what we were doing and Kate and I had all the answers, and Kate and I had arrived because we have a house and two children. And we very quickly let her know, like, no, that is actually not true. Um, there's still a lot of things in our life that demonstrate the mess. There's still, for me, a lot of moments where I'm like, yes, worship, but yes, I still have these questions. Yes, like, I'm, I'm in it totally and fully, but there's still this stuff that I'm trying to wrestle with and figure out, and I want to make space for you in the midst of this, in this moment of Easter, as you recognize and understand that you can be part of this new creation, not by raising a hand or signing a card, but basically just beginning to align yourself with Jesus, saying, I will follow you. You are the Lord. I don't necessarily even know what that means or fully entails as of yet, but I want to go with you and I want to be about this new creation and I want my life to have significance for the things that you're doing. I want to be on board, but can you help me with this? And I believe that Jesus will meet you there. And I don't think that that means he'll answer all of your questions because there's some things that have boggled our minds for centuries, millennia even, but I think that Jesus in the midst of that will meet you where you are and hopefully instill in you this vision that we can be part of the new creation. The old things are passing away and new things are showing up. I also wanna speak just real quickly to one other group in, in the, the room right now. There's some of you perhaps where you've been in the game for a while and you have not seen the fruit of that. You have not seen the new things arriving because your relationships are still terrible. Your job is still terrible. Your school situation is still terrible. People still uh, hurt you or malign you or what have you. I want you to hold out hope that Jesus will meet you, perhaps even already is beginning to meet you through the care and concern of his family. And church, hear me on this. 
when you see people on the margins and the outskirts, you bring them in. When you see people alone, when you see people that are hurt and crying, that is your signal to be about new creation and to invite people in and to start bringing heaven to earth for that one person in that one moment. And all it takes sometimes is a conversation, an invitation, or ears that care being present with people. I think that in the midst of that, we can be Jesus to them. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he was eating with his friends. He took bread and having blessed it, he broke it saying, this is my body that's broken for you. Whenever you're together and you're eating this bread, remember me. This is what Easter is all about. The same meal, Jesus took the cup and he passed it amongst his friends saying, this cup is the blood of the new covenant that's shed for you. Whenever you're together and you're eating this bread and you're drinking this cup, remember me. I don't know where we are as a group. I don't know where you are as individuals, but I know that for some of us, our our picture of Jesus has gotten jacked up along the way. I think that for some of us, even the image that we project to other people has gotten jacked up. And tonight I want to try to reclaim some of that in remembering that Jesus' death and his resurrection, yes, it has significance for you, but it's so much bigger. And the fact that he is inviting us in to be participants with him in this great project of restoration and reconciliation is humbling and it's freaking awesome. Let us not tire of doing the work. Let us not tire of remembering the sacrifice that Jesus has made for us. And let us not forget that resurrection means new creation. It means the old is going away and the new is happening here and now. Be a part of it. Thanks again for joining us. If you live in the Salisbury area, we invite you to visit us for one of our weekly services on Sunday evenings at 5.30 p.m. Whatever your story is, there's room for you here. And again, if you'd like more information, please visit our website at restoresby.org. Hope to see you soon. Thank you.